And the line in the poem is, the blood of the children on the sidewalk is like the blood of children on a sidewalk. And there is no stronger example or, you know, that's a whole essay in bearing witness. No, to, to use a metaphor there mm -hmm. is to distance ourselves from the truth. So when things are seeable, we need to get everything out of the way and say it as it is. When things are unseeable, we need to use every means possible to bring the truth into view. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Mark Nepo. Mark is someone who is considered by many to be one of the finest spiritual guides of our time. He's written 22 books. He's recorded 15 different audio projects. His book, The Book of Awakening, has sold more than a million copies and was chosen as one of Oprah's ultimate favorite things for her farewell season back in 2010. The book that I talk with Mark about in this interview mostly is a book called Drinking from the River of Light, The Life of Expression. And this is a book, Mark says, is not just for writers and artists, but for anyone intent on staying close to the pulse of life. He was named one of the 100 most spiritually influential living people by Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit. He is one of Oprah's own Super Soul 100. He's been a regular columnist for Spirituality and Health. And Mark agreed to do this interview with me five months before we actually did it, which gave me time to read quite a bit of his writing, and I'm so glad I did. Mark's book had sat on my shelf for a number of years before I picked it up. While reading his books, more than one occasion, I was moved to the point of tears. His writing is really beautiful. So if you haven't picked up one of his books, I invite you to start with Drinking from the River of Light, A Life of Expression. The Book of Awakening is a fantastic book as well. In this interview, we talk about how do we know who and what we are. We talk about how we can stay close to the pulse of life. We talk about the difference between giving attention and getting attention, how to do them both, why it matters, what the results are. We talk about living from a heart space, living from the mind. We talk about teaching, what teaching is. Mark shares some unique views on what it is, how to do it effectively. We explore the topic of fear, how to deal with it, how not to let it run our lives. We talk about what true wealth is, how to cultivate it, how to share it. In this conversation, we cover all the big subjects, great love, great suffering, 
and what it means to live fully alive. The way Mark lives life is an incredible lesson. And at the end of this interview, I felt very grateful for not only the things that he shared with me and the perspectives and experiences that he's had, but for how I felt at the conclusion. I, Mark is a very wise and generous person. Mark's website is marknepo.com, M-A-R-K-N-E-P-O.com, or threeintentions.com. So Mark just had this book, Drinking from the River of Light. It just barely came out. And his new book is already about to come out, The Book of Soul, 52 Paths to Living What Matters. It'll be out in May of 2020. Mark also has a number of workshops and programs oriented around writing and spiritual growth. So check his website for dates and availability. Mark, welcome to the School for Good Living. Oh, you're, thank you. It's great to be with you. Appreciate being here. Yeah. Mark, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, as we start, this is a good way to start. I, you know, I don't have any answers. And what I share are examples, not instructions. We're all just comparing notes. And, you know, I think from my experience and, you know, I, I think probably from my work, you know that I'm, I'm a long-term cancer survivor and that has turned me inside out and upside down. And so, you know, I would say from almost dying and still being here, you know, life is about inhabiting, igniting and inhabiting our aliveness, which comes through the inlet of our heart so that we can be part of the human spring, the, the human spring. And so, you know, spring evolves and and is always about breaking ground and opening. And so in a lot of ways, what life is about is our human destiny, being a spirit in a body and time on earth. You know, we think of destiny, we're, we often have a cartoonish notion of destiny. We, like a carrot in front of a donkey, we put out our greatest dream and then we want to say that's our destiny to somehow arrive there. But I see destiny more as coming from in to out than from here to there. So just like fruit and trees and flowers and all of life breaks ground and blossoms and opens and then contributes to the whole, that's our destiny. That's our destiny. And just to stay with that for a moment, you know, every seed, just think of this, every seed begins by obeying a pull to a light it can't see. Mm. And it stays faithful to that pull, which I would call the pull of soul into the world, until it finally breaks ground, which can be harsh. Yeah. And then it starts to take root and sprout at the same time. It grows inward and outwardly until it finally starts to open because it keeps growing toward that light. And, of course, there are many things that get in the way, which is part of why we're here, too. But I think that starts to speak to why we're here. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Thank you for that. Will you tell me, when people ask who you are or when you're introduced, maybe speaking in front of a group, I know you, you do a lot of teaching, but whether you know, you're introducing yourself or you're being introduced to a group or from a stage, how do you like to 
to describe yourself, who, who you are and what you do? Well, the first thing is that I'm a student of all paths. And then I, you know, I am a, I'm a, I'm a spirit in the way that, that, that spirit learns and expresses is I'm a, a poet, a philosopher, and a cancer survivor. And all of that fuels being a student and a teacher. So, you know, it's the poet in me that sees. And it's the philosopher in me that tries to understand what I see. Hmm. But it's the cancer survivor in me that then says, how, how, what, what use is this? How can this help us live? And all of those contribute to my being a teacher, which is a great privilege. And through that, I feel like my job is to help to open a heart space and help introduce others, as well as myself continually, to their own gifts and wisdom. Hmm. No, I, I think that's really wonderful and a blessing you know, to the world that you do that. And, you know, I've owned the book of awakening for many years and I, and I didn't know it was a day book. I'd never, to be honest, I'd owned it. I'd never opened it. And it, it was one of, you know, I, I buy books used at a local thrift store here in Salt Lake city and I'll buy them, you know, basically by the box full of books and, and yours was one. And it wasn't until a, a friend of mine had heard you on the sounds true podcast and said, you got to hear this and maybe, you know, invite Mark to be on your show. And I listened to your conversation with Tammy, and I immediately uh, bought Drinking from the River of Light. Oh, thank you. And, and I read it, and I've, I'll tell you that there were many times, and I, although I think of myself as a sensitive person, it's not common for me that I'll read a book and be moved to the point of tears, oh. regu- like more than once, and I was. And I feel like I learned, it's really interesting to me because I feel like I learned so much, but if you ask me what I learned, I'm not sure I can articulate <laughs> you know, but yeah, I understand. Sure. And part of, part of what I learned is what you talk about with, you know, being a poet. And I thought that was so beautiful. And what you talk about with all expression, all expression, having two noble intentions. And I wonder if, if you'll say a little more about that now, what, when you say that essentially all expression has two noble intentions, what are they? Well, and, and so let's talk about, let's back up first and we'll get to that, but let okay. me back up and, and say that you know, one of the things that's so important to me about that book is, you know, the, the subtitle is The Life of Expression. Yeah. And, and it's because it's open to every, everyone. And so there is a necessity to expression. So I just want to start with that and then we'll go to, the, to, to your question on that. Yeah, I feel very, and I'm sh- and, and definitely almost dying and still being here shaped, changed this for me. And that is, you know, and let's look at our lungs. As we're having this conversation, we have to inhale and exhale. We can't say, oh, well, for the next hour and a half, we'll just inhale. We can't. It's not going to work. The heart has to inhale and exhale. It has to. And the way the heart inhales is by perceiving and feeling. And the way it exhales is by expressing. And so it doesn't matter. It's not about creating masterpieces or great work, or, you know, even excellent work. It's about what the life of expression does to us. Mm. And if we are authentic and sincere and open-hearted and wholehearted, and then chances are we'll, the, the way heat, the way that candle will not only give off light but heat, we will do excellent work. And so, you know, meditation practices, you know, we, are, we, we don't meditate to become great breathers. 
We meditate to center and be a clear vessel. And likewise, we don't write or really express in any art form or, or you know, formal or informal to become great writers. Mm-hmm. We do it to become centered, more alive and clear vessels. So, so with it, and the last thing there would be to, to offer that I've learned that what is not expressed is depressed. So we have to find, and that, that form of expression is personal. It could be writing, painting, dancing, being a musician, and, and it also could be gardening, it could be furniture making, it could be being a car mechanic, it could be stamp collecting, it could be writing the art, the lost art of writing true letters to loved ones. Anything that we bring our whole heart to can be that form of expression. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay, given all of that, let's return to your question. I think the two of the, the noble the noble calls and reasons for expressing one is to say the unsayable that is the things that matter that carry meaning and presence are mostly unseeable love truth beauty well beauty we can see but you know much like you know the wind you don't see the wind except for what it moves through Mm. you don't see light until it actually hits something to illuminate and so the purpose of expression and writing is to bring those things briefly in view, the things that matter in view, and to help each other see them, feel them, learn from them, because then, and so that they're teachers. The second kind of noble, I feel, intention of expression is to bear witness. So the things that are seeable, we don't need, you know, metaphor, for example, is a great vehicle has always been a great vehicle, an image, for trying to briefly bring into view what's unseeable, you know. But when things are seeable, our job is to bear witness to what is as truthfully as possible. And, you know, I use a great example in the book of the great Pablo Neruda, the Chilean poet. And, you know, he spent his life being a poet, of course, but being a diplomat for the government of Chile, which a patron of his who was in government knew what a great poet he was, even at a young age, and actually hired him as a diplomat so he could send him around the world to expose him as a person, to expose his lens to other cultures, other people. So he was purposely sent to Spain in the 30s because of the great, in that generation, you had an amazing amount of, of budding Spanish poets, Lorca and Machado and Jimenez and all these amazing. And so he sent Pablo and said, hey, you, you want to learn with these guys, you know. And in fact, and so while he was there, though, as an ambassador or diplomat from Chile, this, this Spanish Civil War was underway, which was a bloody, terrible war, broke out while he was there. And he saw a lot of horrible things. And so he has a line from a poem of his that, it, that, that says, the t- poem is called, I'm Explaining a Few Things. And the line in the poem is, the blood of the children on the sidewalk is like the blood of children on a sidewalk. And there is no stronger example or, you know, that's a whole essay in bearing witness. No, to, to use a metaphor there is to distance ourselves from the truth. So when things are seeable, we need to get everything out of the way and say it as it is. When things are unseeable, we need to use every means possible to bring the truth 
into view. Mm-hmm. So one of the one of the real challenges I feel always for for artists is to marry what is with what can be. Yeah. Well, I love what you say about metaphor, and it's only in the last few years that I've really begun to pay attention to my own speaking, and particular attention to those around me, and and I'm often astonished at how I think many people use a metaphor unaware and like in a really disempowering way, like calling you know their spouse their ball and chain, or oh my god, you know, yes, you know talking about something, you know people will say like. You know, this one's not necessarily disempowering, but, you know, things being a walk in the park or it's a downhill slide or, you know, these kinds of things that I realize are an attempt to express their experience, you know, of something. But I think many people don't know, you know, the power that they have to shape their experience through their speaking. Yes. And we we, another very, which is a symptom almost of, of our culture is the violence in, you know, we say if something is powerful we say it blew me away yeah it blew my mind you know it dynamite it mm-hmm. you know well let, you know when it is incumbent on us no let's it illuminated my mind it it opened my mind like a flower you know yeah. um yeah. it washed through my mind like sea through an inlet you know it's very careful what we're saying you know yeah. Well, and it's fun. I have a friend who just a year ago, I heard him use the expression to feed two birds with one hand. <laughs> and I was like, that is really great. You know, but you can get a lot of, from someone about the way they choose to describe their experience. Let me ask you this. With, with this book, um, Drinking from the River of Light, what was the moment you knew you were going to write this book? Well, yeah, it's interesting. So this was a book that it came, well, I have to back up. So, so this was a book that actually Tammy, we, the Sounds True had a few wonderful festivals called the Wake Up Festivals in 2012, 13, 14, 15. And I was blessed to teach at those. And, and so Tammy had asked me at a couple of those, would I design a, a two-day intensive pre-festival workshop on writing and spiritual growth? Well, you know, that was like asking a kid if they'd like candy you know i mean i was like <laughs> yes 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 and yes and so that gave me a, and so i designed this two-day journey and didn't realize it but began to explore a lot of the topics that themes that are in the book and so after that i had that aside i had that and i wasn't thinking of it as a book but then the the whole experience was really stayed with me and so then I realized I was sitting here at my desk where I'm speaking to you now in my study. And I, I was kind of in between books and I was overlooking kind of like a farmer looking at which field is fallow and which will we plant this spring, you know. And I have folders that years, decades of collecting things. So I had one folder that was collecting teaching stories and things about teaching and learning. And I had another that was filled with stories of artists, writers, composers, you know, all kinds of things. And all of a sudden I saw those two and the the notes and outline for that workshop as three things and I just intuitively dumped them all together. Wow, just, that's exactly just, what you were just saying about yeah, the creative I, too. I just literally dumped them all together and as soon as I did, I knew that they all were going to be a book and I had to listen to, I had to sort, listen, 
And, and, and that's the other way that I work is I had to find the organic structure. So I found that a lot of the themes, the, the outline of that course started to be the skeletal outline of the book, which was much more fleshed out in the table of contents now. But then stories and, and other things from teaching and, and artists' lives started to actually gravitate. I actually felt them gravitate. Oh, I belong here. Oh, I belong here. And then I started to, to see how they all started to go together and also asking me to write my way from... So a constellation presented itself and then I had to write my way from one point to the next. Mm. You know, in, in that mention of that word constellation, I'm reminded of something I read and I'm not sure if it was in this book or another one of your books, but you, you made the, the description of the intellect is like a ladder. And the intuition yes. is like a constellation. And, yes. and so what I'm hearing is that very thing, that here was this these three kind of folders, and you saw it in a way and put it together in a new way. And then in a way, you allowed the material to guide you. Absolutely. And I'd say that that has been a big shift in, you know, like many, many young writers, artists, I was taught, and even, even earlier, you know, in, in, as we learned to think and write in school, we're taught to be ladder thinkers. We're taught to be very sequential and logical. And, 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 and logic and sequence are fine. They're great tools, but they're not codes to live by. They're tools in a toolbox. They're not necessarily ways to perceive. Yeah. They're tools. So, but we were taught, I was taught, you know, very early, if I, you know, if I'm going to write something, I need to think it all through. I need to have an outline, logical outline. I need to have a sequence. I need to know what I'm going to say before I go ahead and try to say it. Mm-hmm. That's not at all, that's totally ass backwards from what my living experience as a inner pilgrim. I mean, I feel like for me, being a writer has been like being an inner explorer, you know, discovering paths, uh, terrains, and then taking notes, interacting, listening, finding, you know, good places to look from, live from, eat from. So, so what happens along the way was that, you know, early on, and then, you know, move ahead and I'm in, you know, I did my doctoral work at the University of Albany, where I taught for many years after that, that was, and, uh, and, you know, I was taught by other, in writing programs to, you know, and by writers, just even, you know, not in a program, just other, you know, teaching write, writers who are older, be on the look for good material. Mm-hmm. You know, always be, have your, your eye out for good material. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But again, it's one tool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, almost dying from cancer and still being here was a miracle in itself, but but the deeper miracle is that it opened me to the lens of the miraculous because everything is miraculous. The ordinary the, opens us to the lens of the miraculous. And so I don't have to look for good material. Everything is good material. Yeah. I have to be an open enough, clear enough, centered enough, present enough receptacle or conduit to receive that material and that part of the miracle. So I can write about anything if I'm present enough. And so therefore, 
I wind up it, my whole, you know, yes. Yeah, so I don't, I certainly, I get the way books come, you know, that something will come and I'll know through a feeling, an image, a title, something or a structure that this is going to open to a book. But I know immediately that is only the doorway in that then I have to organically discover the, not one of the books that I have written is the book I started. Yeah. Not one. That's, that's interesting. And I and think very, a, a different form of discipline to have the, the wisdom or the judiciousness to follow where the book wants to go and not impose your own will on, you know, Well, this, this is where I mentioned this in the book, as you know, this is, we are called, I think, to discover more than invent, hmm. which is a relational journey. So it, to be an author is, doesn't mean that I create everything out of nothing. That's yeah. really kind of gross ego, yeah. you know. Uh, and and so yeah so you know I the way I work is I'm always scribbling I'm always listening looking hearing feeling and so if something touches me and my heart's Geiger counter goes off I take it down and work with it mm-hmm. immediately or as immediately as possible so that and without any thought to where you know not manipulating it like oh this would fit here yeah. this would go good here. No, I try to stay in honorable relation to its aliveness, not what I can make use of it, but how can I relate to it? And so therefore, if it's a a sentence, if it's a question, if it's an image, if it's a paragraph, whatever it might be, I work with it as immediately as possible, not because I'll forget it if I don't, because if I do it later, because I've been blessed, I've always had kind of a photographic memory and, but if I do it lay, if I do it immediately, it will be three dimensional and have texture and color. If I do it later, it will be two dimensional silhouette in black and white. It'll become mental and not felt. So then I have these, you know, this is the way I live is, you know, every week I will have, in, in addition to whatever I'm consciously doing, I'll have this kind of buildup of these little shells and twigs and gems that I find along the way and I dump them out. And then I do this where I say I have, you know, on my computer, I have visual folders for each idea or book. And I say, okay, where does it go? Hmm. Where, Where does it go for now? And this is where, you know, almost dying helps me because I, if I have any hesitation or indecisiveness, I say, this moment is the only moment I have. Where does it go? Yeah. That's, I don't have any other information. Make a decision now. And then I throw it in there. And then when I come to work with what's in that bin, bucket, folder, I very much, like I mentioned with this book, I dump it out and I say, talk to me. Not, what can I weave? How can, but talk to me. What, what is here? You all, in individual parts, you spoke to me all along the journey. Now together, what is it you want me to hear? What is it you want me to convey? What's, and, and then, so I look and listen for the organic structure. Yeah, that, that's really beautiful. And, and as you share your, your process, a few things that come up for me, I think about something that one of my teachers, Sadhguru, will talk about is that hesitation. He'll say hesitation is actually the greatest sin because it's the denial of life. And here's you honoring, you know, life in its immediacy and and, and all its beauty. 
and, and the other thing about you know what what you're describing for me it sounds very indigenous where in my understanding of indigenous culture and I know that's a broad brush but one of the hallmarks is this this awareness and appreciation for relationship being in relationship with everything you know with these everything. impressions yeah and that, yeah. You know, you're practicing that in a way that I think is very unusual for our western rational white <laughs> you know yeah. culture but I honor I think it's really beautiful well, thank you. I mean, I, it's, it's, again, it's where I've discovered, and, and, and I share so much, and one of the reasons I share so much about the process and in the book is because this is the, the pro, what I have happened to learn from this process, it's not just a, quote, creative process. It's an introspective process that's available. Its lessons are available and, apl- and applicable to any spirit, whether you consider yourself an artist or not. It's how inner interfaces with outer it's Mm -hmm. how we become who we are in the world and so it's not just it's not a process that is creative alone yeah in other than the fact that it creates us yeah so one one thing that i would offer with this is this is one of the hardest things to teach young writers and it was hard for me when i was a young writer because as a a young writer you know if you have a vision my god you know Oh my God, I have a vision, you know, finally. And then this, we're so attached, of course, and committed in, with good intent to want to bring it into being, fashion it into the world. And so when it doesn't, when it comes alive and doesn't behave the way we imagine, we start to say, well, I've failed. Why can't I, I aim over here and it doesn't go there? What happened? You know, there's skill, there's craft of, See, saying what you see, but that's not what I mean. I mean that when it, when you have an idea for a story or a play or a novel or even a, a way of looking at the world that you want to invoke and explore, and then it start you know life keeps moving. It doesn't, and and so it's very easy to say, well, I've failed. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things to teach is no, it's that the work is coming alive, and you're being asked to follow it, not lead it. And so it's as if you know, it's as if the mysterious work is saying, now that I see you're serious, now I'll show you what this is really about. Hang on. Yeah, that that's so powerful. And I think it's in this book that you share about, I think, I don't know if it was a student or a friend of yours that spent like five years. Oh, that was a colleague. That was a friend, uh, a, you know, a, a peer in my generation, a wonderful novelist. And, uh, oh yeah, my God, his early novel, he he developed this Midwest family saga that was generate multi-generational and it spent ye- years, five years, had about 250 pages into it. And he reached this kind of moment like walking to the edge of a cliff. And I, and I saw him that day. He was kind of stunned and both sad and exhausted and somewhat exhilarated at the same time. And I said, what's happening? And he said, it's all done. It's like, it's, you know, it's no good. It's not, you know, it's, it's the only good thing is that it's led me to the threshold of what it's really about. And I could, and he had the clarity and courage to say, I, you know, after all the work I've put in, I could force it. I could, I could force it to its conclusion, or I could accept that this was the climb to the plateau from which he could see what the real story was about. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I, I love the way you describe that too, to have the courage you know, to do that and the wisdom, you know, to know. Yeah. 
I, I think I think that's beautiful. One one thing that you know, in, in speaking of this, this about creativity, about your life journey, something I want to ask you about because I think many people listening, especially maybe people earlier in their career, their journey as a, an artist or a writer, and I, I know this is very common that many people they they, they don't know what the what the day is that they can assert their identity as that. Like, is it when I'm published? Is it when someone else calls me that? Is it when the day I finally muster the courage to claim it? You know, this kind of thing. But I was really touched by something you shared about when you were coming off the top of a hill in Cartland and you knew you were a poet. Like yeah. it just for you, and many people, I think, don't necessarily get that in that knowledge, that certainty about who they are, what their role in the world is, that kind of thing. But would you be willing to share that story for people listening, and then sure. what it was like to have that? Yeah, and then let's talk a little bit about because that's a very important, important portal of worth that you raise. So let's and then let's talk about that. Enter that a little bit. Well, yeah, I was I was a freshman at Cortland State in the late 60s. And, you know, it was just before creative writing programs were really flourishing. So, you know, I was not in a place where I could enter. No one would let me write. You know, it was a little more the old school. How dare you say you want to write until you've read everything that's ever been written first. And so, you know, but I was in in Cortland and Cortland State is a small state college in upstate New York that's on the top of a mound, almost like a hill, like you could fall it was always a joke. You could, it was circled on the bottom by the town and literally circled. The bottom of the hill was a circular road. And you could fall off the hill anywhere and wander into a bar, you know. like It was like that kind of college, old college, archetypal college town. And I was a freshman. I was coming off the hill, going downtown. And a, a, a gust of wind came from behind my head, behind my ear. And it stopped me. You know, it was like whoosh. And... And I stopped and it, I couldn't, you know, of course I couldn't see the wind, but I kind of felt it like go past me out because I was on top of the hill, out into the air. And then it reached about a mile or so away to the next hill. And, I, and then I saw the trees in the distance kind of sway a little from that wind. And in that moment, I knew I was a poet because I understood the reach. Now that, that's not logical in any way, but I knew that I was a poet. Uh, even though I hadn't written anything. And, and even then I had a sense that being a poet is about a way of seeing. And the words are the trail. And, as you, and I, I would define poetry as the unexpected utterance of the soul. Whether you write it down or not. I mean, the poetry's already happened between us, between you and life. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole, if, if that happens, then there's the commitment in any art form, then to bring, like, you know, Beethoven heard music and then he had to bring it to the instruments through the notes. Yeah. And we have to bring it to the page through the words or to the canvas through the paint or through the body into dance. But let's talk for a minute about this. It's a very important portal of worth. How do we know who we are and what we are? And, and I think we are very externally named and qualified and and so that this bears you know if you're a very and, and it's very to me it's internally named and experienced so yeah you know you're a poet whether your work is ever published you're a musician whether you ever have a record or a song produced 
you know, and so if we go all the way back to grade school and you're out at recess and you're spinning wonderfully in the sun and feeling your body and then a teacher laughs at what a beautiful little child you are and, and you know, says, you know, you, you move so gracefully without even, you know, you should become a dancer. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're playing in the dirt and somebody says, yeah, you should become a gardener. Or you're just singing to yourself and then someone says, uh, you know, a grandparent says, you should become a singer. There's nothing wrong with becoming. But that is the seed. If that is not accompanied or sustained by the inner inhabiting of that, of that life force, then we're giving the power of who we are over to, well, who, how do I know when I've become a singer? When have I become a gardener? When have I, somebody's got to tell me, somebody's got to tick it off, somebody's got to, I have to have some evidence or certificate or approval. And so you see the life force comes from staying a verb and not becoming a noun. If you like to sing, just sing. If you like to have your hands in the dirt, just put your hands in the dirt. If you like to express, it's because, so this gets to something deeper which is a whole chapter, as you know, devoted in the book to getting attention versus giving attention. So in our modern world and in the outer world of circumstance, we're often taught, look, if if you want to get ahead, you need to get attention. Mm -hmm. And certainly, you know, you have, if you want to apply for a job, you have to have a resume, you have to present yourself. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong with these efforts, but it's when they are out of balance and over-invested that they start to define us. You know, the real value, the aliveness comes if you want to get a heart, you give attention. So, you know, when I was a young, even before I was writing, you know, I started writing unconsciously to keep the wonder in view a little longer. Those unseeable things we were talking about earlier, I'd see something that was striking or moving or a peak moment. I didn't have that language, but and then I'd and then it'd be gone. And I'd say, wait a minute, don't, where'd you go? And I'd try to write to almost like sketching with words to keep it in view just a little longer. Wait, wait, I didn't even get the lesson. And so we are brought alive when we give attention and recognize and verify. But when we get it, I mean, when attention comes our way, great. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we seek it, then we are, we're asking to be recognized and verified. Yeah. And now it all starts to invert. No, and, and that, I mean, this is something that was very powerful for me in this book where you talk about, you know, staying close to the pulse of life. And writing is a way, is one way to do that. Really, I suppose it's available to us anytime that we engage in expression and that we're doing in and that's interesting too. And I love what you said earlier about the heart breathing, you know, that there's this process of, of paying attention, you know, and I love what you describe about writing is listening with the heart and taking notes. You know, so you're, you're listening, you're paying attention. And then there comes a time when it is maybe the exhalation and the sharing, and then maybe attention comes, but not seeking that in a disproportionate way. And, and that was something I had not perceived before about the give and take both of giving and getting attention. And that reminds me of this other thing, and maybe they're related about, you talk about celebrity versus celebration. Will you talk about that? Yes, they're very related. If I'm insecure, the only way to validate my own worth 
is by recognizing and verifying the life around me so I can discover and have mirrored in me the life that's in me. Mm. But often we go in the wrong direction. So now I'm feeling insecure. And now, well, tell me I'm okay. Mm. Now I'm going to you. Now there's nothing wrong with comfort, but and there's nothing wrong with, and it's healthy to have authentic mirroring mm. and affirmation. But but when I'm going to you, like you said, to now, so does a doctorate, is that going to make me feel like I have worth? Is having a published book going to make me feel like I'm enough? It's okay. And so now you have, you look at our kind of the last 25 years, the reality TV world. You know, on the one hand, we are looking so desperately to be, to val- have our worth validated that we're, where we want to be celebrated celebrity when we're actually quietly aching for something to celebrate to celebrate and so you know in in a very and many traditions speak about this in different ways but you know if i if i you know i can't think my way out of insecurity mm-hmm. or lack of worth i need to love and give my way out of it mm. so you know if you're feeling insecure give yeah. Well, and that goes back to what, what you said about what is not expressed is depressed. When we give, when we express, yeah, then we're not just trying to think our way out of it or attempt to, you know, get validation or more attention our way, but we're actually giving. And that's not necessarily, I don't know that that's either logical or intuitive, you know? Yeah. And I think, and, you know, and to touch in this briefly here to talk about our society and, 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 and where we are you know, right now. And so I want to touch, take this to a different level. And, and that's a way to address, to look at all the mass shootings, the epidemic of mass shootings in our culture. Mm-hmm. And it's worldwide, but it's an epidemic in America. Oh. And so, you know, one of the things that I think that violence is a last desperate attempt to feel. Mm-hmm. The, the urge and need to express and feel never goes away. And if it is if it is stuffed and capped and suppressed enough, it will come out as violence. And, and so I want to evoke here a metaphor to connect what we're talking about to the extreme. So, you know, we're talking within the, the realm of our normal psychology, this give and take and celebrating and being a celebrity and being desperate. Well, when we go to the extreme, so the the image here is a biological one of an aneurysm. Now, an aneurysm is a weak cell or artery that when the body is pressurized enough, that's where it'll break, it'll explode, and usually leads to a stroke of some kind in, in the body. So when the body has a high enough blood pressure or, or compromised enough and is under enough pressure, it'll go to the, weak, the weakest cell and that will explode. Well, these people who are mass shooters are responsible. They're, they're, they are crazy and they are responsible for what they do. And they are social aneurysms. They are weak souls in the global body. So they are responsible for what they do, and, and it's not okay for us to say they're crazy, it has nothing to do with us. Because what are we doing that pressurizes our social body 
that we're having an epidemic of social aneurysms explode. Yeah. And that's where not only is expressing and creativity and, and, and loving and giving and all the things we're talking about, not only is it just good for you and me, it's good for the social body. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, and this is something I think and talk a fair amount about as well, not just these public shooters, but all the many forms of unworkability whether it's the depression or the anxiety or the loneliness or the addiction or the divorce or, you know, preventable diseases from lifestyle choices, you know. And overall, I've never thought of it as you described it there, but I think that's a, a very great metaphor about, you know, the social body and the pressurization and, you know. So what we point. can do is, you know, we need to examine what ways can we uh, n normalize or, or reduce the pressure in the social body that is America. Mm. That's the part that we can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this, in just a moment, with your permission, I want to transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Sure. But before we do, I'm wondering if you're willing to share this story that from the story you say, all the books I've written over the years and all the teaching circles I've convened have been an endless attempt to understand what came to me in that moment. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and, and the reason I go here is I think if there's an answer of what can we do, it's probably related to what you realized in that moment, each of us realizing something similar. Well, so you're, I, I thank you. I mean, you're referring, it was a very profound moment during my cancer journey in my 30s, and I had a rare form of lymphoma. And, and it was very difficult to diagnose and, and to de determine what the proper treatment would be. And I had had a, a rib removed in my back surgically. And two weeks later, I was in New York with loved ones having my first chemo treatment, which was horribly botched in that I was not, you know, chemo, especially back then, would make you nauseous and sick and and I was not prepared for it. And the only medicine I was given was oral, which I couldn't keep down. And so my former wife and my, one of my oldest, dearest friends, the three of us were in a Holiday Inn room after the treatment and uh, not knowing what to expect. And, and of course, I only had a rib removed two weeks earlier, so I was very sore. And um, I started to get sick. And... Not, and, uh, and of course, it was on a weekend and, you know, every time I got sick, it was like, well, this can't keep happening. And yet every half hour I was getting sick. And, and again, with having a rib just removed, that was very painful. And then I started to cough up blood. And, and of course, we eventually did go to the emergency room. But, you know, for several hours, we we're like, well, this has got to stop. And what do we do? And how do we uh, ride this out? And so by this time, it was four or five in the morning and of course we're all exhausted and I was kind of slouched on the floor against the wall with my knees up and my elbows on my knees and my head in my hands and you know my former wife Anne was very upset as you can imagine and scared we all were and and angry and you know, started asking very angrily where is God where is God you know and I don't know where it came from in me, but from that slouched, exhausted position, I whispered here, right here. And all of us were kind of stunned. 
because I didn't really know where that came from in me. And then the sun started to come up. And I had this deep, kind of profound revelation as the sun was coming up that almost a voice in my heart that said, to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. And I started to feel as the sun came up, you know, I was still terrified, in pain, not knowing what, where this was going, what went wrong, what did we need to do. We were going to go to the emergency room, obviously. But in those moments before we left, I felt, you know, yeah, this is real for me. But somewhere, a couple are making love for the first time while I'm slouched on the floor. Somewhere a baby is being born. Somewhere a parent and an adult child are talking for the first time over coffee after not talking for years. You know, and I realized that it's all true. And we need it to be all true. You know, that it is what it doesn't, you know, often what we do, I've learned since, is that often we make everything about us, understandably, at first. So, you know, that was hor terrible, horrifying, life-changing, you know, precipice I was on. So the whole world is terrible. Bro you know, we, we extrapolate and make a world view out of what we're going through. And the grace that came to me, not through any wisdom on my part, I just was too exhausted to keep any, to filter anything out. And therefore it instructed me was that, no, you know, there's more going on. This is real, but there's more going on than just what's happening to you. And that's actually healing, mm. you know? And the other way we go is like, you know, we say, oh, well, if I realize it's not just about me, then we minimize it. You know, then we say, well, every, I'm in, this is insignificant. This is nothing. I, why am I bought? Why am I getting so upset? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's, it's both. All things are true. And this, this raises another profound thing that I've learned. And that is that, you know, we're taught at an early age. And again, the mind is a great tool, unlike any other creature that we know of. I mean, we don't speak other creatures languages so we really don't know but but you know it seems like our consciousness is quite a gift and the way the mind works but we are taught to use that mind we're taught to analyze select sort and choose you know we're always and that's the art of problem solving that's a great art to have it's a good thing. It's a good thing to know how to, you know, make sure you get cottage cheese that hasn't expired. <laughs> but it's not a worldview. Again, it's not a code to live by. It's a tool. But what I've learned from that moment and others in my life is the things that matter, the things that are unsayable, to go back to our earlier conversation, the things that matter always ask the heart to absorb and integrate not sort and choose. Mm -hmm. So yes, in the outer world of circumstance, I have to sort and choose. And that's a good skill to have. But it's all for the moments, the transformative moments that we can't choose or select that always ask us to open up, absorb and integrate until a deeper logic of spirit reveals itself to us, often through the heart. Often through the heart. You know, that, Mark, the view, your perspectives are so beautiful. 
And I'm reminded when I read Walter Isaacson's recent biography of Leonardo da Vinci. Oh. When, when he talks about da Vinci just paying such meticulous attention to virtually everything, trying to figure out how many times a, a second does a dragonfly flap its wings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like these kinds of things. And almost like a child, childlike, you know, curiosity and wonder at everything. And, and when you say these things like to absorb and integrate instead of to sort and choose, I feel, and I, I realize I'm judging myself, but th- that's an awareness or, you know, an insight that was available to me the whole time. But I don't know how many lifetimes I would have had to have lived to come to that on my own. You well, know? but that's, that's, that's why we need each other. So yeah, not to judge yourself because there are insights I'm sure you have that, that I haven't yet understood. So this is why we need each other and why we're more together than alone. And I believe that life has been made just difficult enough that we need each other to ensure the journey of love and things. This is one of the other hard things. And then we can get to your lightning round. (laughs) One of the the other hard things that is very difficult to, to inhabit in our modern world, because I mean, I love technology. It's look what it's letting us share here right now. Right. Yeah. But it never replaces the fact, the mystical fact that things that matter still take time. And, you know, you know, we learn things exact, as impatient as we are, we learn things exactly in the time it takes to learn them. You know, I, I was recently, and this is one of the beautiful privileges of teaching, I was teaching uh, in January with an amazing group of talented, experienced teachers themselves, facilitators, therapists, gifts, and we got into a very tender, deep conversation in which uh, a very wise man shared how 10 years ago when his father had passed away, his father was, in, toward the end of his life, he was, he was in a setting and he was like fixated on this, this light through, this wind and light through a tree out of room. And, and he was remembering here 10 years past that you know, I, I have to say I was just annoyed. Like, you know, I was trying to talk to him and he just kept, you know, focusing on this damn thing through the window. And and that day he was tearing now and he was saying, now I'm realizing that he was glimpsing eternity. And, and he was, you know, tearing and crying and saying, and I missed it. Wow. And I said to him, you didn't miss it. It just arrived. And I remember coming home and, and I was, and we all, you know, he be, in that moment, he became the teacher. And that's the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching is holding and honoring a heart space until who's the teacher moves around the room. And I remember coming home and saying to my wife, Susan, and my oldest friend, Robert, saying, you know, just like discovering the books, I went out there to teach quote and when he when that moment happened i realized i discovered that the reason i flew out there to be in that space was to be there in that moment to honor for him that he hadn't missed that moment Mm -hmm. in his life that was the sole reason i went out there which i didn't know until it happened wow that's wonderful well you know, one thing I appreciate about this conversation is I, I sometimes say to my wife, I say, you know, 
I do a lot of things and I don't know why I do them. <laughs> you know, I can explain them after the fact if I'm called to, but, but uh, I sometimes view that as a, like a deficiency. But when I hear you, you know, sharing like your experience, I feel now there's, there's something really beautiful that can, that can happen when I allow myself to do that. Well, this, you know, uh, Emerson, who I highly recommend everybody reading Emerson and Walter Walter Emerson. And he has a quote, I can't, quoted exactly. I think I have it in the book somewhere. But what he says is, he basically says, he says, every every condition, every problem, every condition we face is a solution in hieroglyphic hmm. to any questions we could ask. But we don't understand it until we live it. Hmm. So that it's as if, and the way I understand that is that every person has their own language of wisdom. And we only decode one word at a time, one experience at a time. That's beautiful. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones. There's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.